Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Michael McKee is near the Bay of Fundy. He's like in another time zone. He's so Canadian. He's ahead of us. Uh, in Maine. He's at Camp Kotak, of course. And his first interview is an important interview. Here's Michael McKee with a guy formerly at the Atlanta Fed and now with Cumberland Advisors, Robert Eisenbeis on jobs. Bob, the uh, jobs report on Friday. How key is it to a Fed that seems to be unsure about whether they want to raise rates or not? Well, I think they would like to see a positive number, uh, a bigger number, more consistent with what they saw the most recent uh, release as opposed to the 38,000. I think um, that will provide at least some sense then of what momentum looks like in the marketplace for jobs, because that's a, such a critical element of what they're concerned about uh, uh, in assessing the, the growth prospects for the economy, particularly uh, on the heels of the slow growth number that came out for the second quarter. Do you believe that second quarter number? Well, it's not three, uh, and it's not likely to be revised up to three. Uh, so, you know, we've had three quarters in a row now where the number has been below two. Uh, in fact, hardly bigger than one. And so, uh, you know, I think that's a source of concern when you're looking at momentum in the economy. Uh, I, I don't see the kind of growth that some people are seeing in the third quarter, particularly when you look at corporate earnings and uh, some of the other numbers that have come out in the meantime. Well, the bizarre thing was that Consumer spending was 4.2%. And so how do you square that with a slowing economy? Well, I understand that. But uh, a good por some portion of that uh, consumer spending uh, came out of uh, savings and not out of income. And so that probably can't be sustained. And when you put that together with the automobile numbers, which were pretty dismal uh, for the last uh, month, uh, that says the consumer really has pulled back on one of the big purchases that had been driving uh, and been a significant component of consumer spending uh, the last several months. Well, bringing back to jobs, uh, everybody's going to be looking at the wage component. What are you expecting? If the economy is growing slowly, uh, and if the number is, in fact, what it appeared to be, then I don't see a lot of opportunity for a significant gain in wages. The, the thing about the wage number is the aggregate number is one thing, but when you look at particular sectors, it's the skilled workers that are getting the increases, not the people who are essentially in the service sectors uh, where most of the jobs are being created. So, uh, you know, there's a, a gap there between what's happening in the service sector, the low productivity kind of jobs, those people aren't getting the wage increases, and that's a huge proportion of the job gains that we've seen. So the Phillips curve doesn't hold at this point? I don't think it ever held, uh, to be honest with you. I think uh, it, it may have been a statistical relationship at one time, but it hasn't been a reliable indicator for any particular. I have a basic fundamental problem in thinking that inflation is a real side phenomenon. So the idea that labor markets get tight, that wages are built up, then people have to pass those wages on in the form 
where's money in this equation? Uh, I, I'm sort of follow Milton Friedman, who thinks that uh, money, too much money chasing too few goods is where you get inflation. Inflation is not a real side phenomenon. Well, that's an interesting observation in a time when the Fed is, in theory, trying to pump money into the economy, but is basically just boosting reserves, not cash. Exactly. And there's some interesting nuances there. When you think that 40 percent of the reserves are in foreign institutions, uh, and because of the fact that they can get a 90 basis point differential as opposed to holding reserves at a negative uh, rate in, in their central bank in Europe or in Japan, or a positive 50 basis points uh, in the U.S., that really essentially means that they want to hold reserves at the Fed. They only account for 9% of the deposit. So, uh, and you put together, that together with the fact that those reserves meet the liquidity coverage ratio constraints. They have a big incentive just to hold those reserves, and they're being sterilized by the combination of the fact that they're not significant players in the U.S. You've got the zero interest rate policy going on in the rest of the world, and you've got this regulatory phenomenon with liquidity coverage ratios that put a premium on assets like U.S. Treasuries and deposits at the Fed. So, bottom line, you come back to it, you maybe have a 4.8, 4 4.7% unemployment rate. You're close to full employment, but do you get any signs out of the jobs report that the other part of the Fed's mandate, inflation, is starting to rise? Well, if you look at uh, where the PCE is, and some people get confused, they think it's the core PCE. It's not the core PCE, which is the Fed's target. It's the headline number, as you well know. Uh, that's down at uh, under one at this juncture, and there's not a lot of momentum uh, coming from that uh, side of the equation at this point. I did find it interesting on the ride up here to hear that the unemployment rates in a number of the major cities in Maine are at 3% or lower, substantially below even the national rate. I was quite surprised to hear that. One last question, because Tom wants to know, um, what kind of fish do you think you're going to be able to catch this weekend? I want to catch every kind that's out here. That's my, that's my goal. I want to catch a salmon again. I want to catch uh, a lake trout if we can. Oh, come on, you're but, killing me. Uh, I think if we can get some good white perch to eat, I think that'll oh, satisfy everybody. All right, Tom, there you go. Bob Eisenweiss from Cumberland Advisors. We are working to triangulate our satellites with one A. Posen of the Peterson Institute. President of this the is, Institute. Yes, this has been an historic day and an important day. Adam Posen, on June 27th, within the shock and awe and debris of Brexit, spoke at the LSE of after the referendum, now what? Dr. Posen, did we get the now what this morning? We got some of the now what, Tom. We got the immediate now what, which is, as every reasonable economist thought, and as Carney and the MPC rightly forecast, this is a huge negative shock to the to the UK yeah. economy. And in the short run, you're going to be having a recession. The Bank of England is forecasting they narrowly dodge a recession because of what the stimulus they did today. I hope they're right. I think you're still going to get a little bit of a recession. 
But, you know, this is the short-term impact. The long-term impact, uh, which you've been covering, is about the change in British fundamentals, about their access to markets, their competitiveness. Yep. So as Governor Carney acknowledged, this is only about offsetting some of the panic and, and uncertainty now. It's not going to mm-hmm. change the fundamentals. Buried in any intermediate macro book is the guesstimate, the probability, the fan distribution of these moving parts. Today, without question... The mystery is the future inflation path that Governor Carney is going to have to enjoy. People cautious would suggest we may see more or higher inflation than what BOE laid out today. What is the risk of higher inflation, which gives you higher nominal GDP, which gives guys like you a struggle? It gives central bankers a struggle because, in the end, you you have this sort of chasing your tail. If inflation expectations are well anchored, as you've heard the phrase, meaning that when stuff happens in the short term, the long-term financial market and household expectations do not shift. So, like, when you can get away with easier policy. So, like, while I was on the MPC in 2010-2011, Inflation in the U.K. temporarily shot up to 5%, but I and a few others said, look, everybody knows that's temporary. We can do soft policy. It's not going to hurt inflation coming down, and it didn't. The trick for the Bank of England for the MPC this time through is this is such a fundamental shift in the way the U.K. is being run and its economic prospects, and the readjustment of the currency may be permanent or at least lasting, that you you may see a higher inflation pass through. Yeah. So this this could mean, and you know, the governor references as you yes. said. You know, this could mean that you know a year or two down the road, inflation is well over target. And this is why I had said earlier, you know, I thought they might be hesitant to cut, and they may have to reverse themselves. Uh, but this... you know, reversing yourself is not the worst thing in the world. On this Super Thursday, we are talking with Adam Posen. He is the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And if you'll indulge me for a moment here, Tom, I want to note the prescience of one William Fitzsimmons, a name that will be familiar to many of our listeners on Bloomberg 1200 in Boston. He is, of course, the longtime director of admissions at Harvard College. And back in 1983, when he was sifting through applications, he flagged to accept both Adam Posen and Mark Carney admitted them to the class of 1988 at Harvard College. Mark Carney, economics concentrator, Adam Posen, government concentrator. Adam, it's great to have you with us. Carney, Let me... the, the difference is <laughs> Carney got a real job. Yeah, exactly. Carney, Carney, Carney's much more ready for prime time than I am, guys. There you go. Uh, and he, he also played hockey, and I was just a nerd in the, in the dorm. So. You, you met at Winder from time to time. So, so Bill, Bill picked better with Carney. There anyway, you go. thanks for that. Let me, let me ask you just about the context we got from Governor Carney today. Uh, he yeah. said that this is a response that will make this process of negotiation, transition, ultimately Brexit is going to make it more likely to be a success. This, this was the context in which this decision was made. Talk about the case that he made to reporters there after the release of, uh, of, of this new policy today. I think... Governor Carney and the MPC had a very good case to make because they, they got it broadly right. They said, look, we're not making any specific predictions about what the nature of the EU-UK deal will be on trade. We're just assuming it's going to be less free trade than it was, and we're assuming there's going to be uncertainty dragging down investment in a huge range of, of industries and, and companies, which is absolutely reasonable. And they said, rightly, that we have to get out in front of this because the decline in all the forward-looking indicators is as bad or worse than what we saw in 08 as a question of change, not, not level. 
And again, that's absolutely right. And then the third thing that they did that Carney, I think, was very strong on, Governor Carney was very strong on, and rightly so, and I used to say the same thing to much less effect when I was there, if, if you can't whine about what happens to small savers' interest rates or to small banks' profitability or even large banks' profitability because what you're facing is putting millions of people out of work. And what that does not only to those people in the economy, but what that does ultimately to asset price values uh, through a number of channels, including the political channel, is much worse for savers than if you don't act. So on all these key issues, I think the governor set out what the MPC was doing, and they were right. There are some things on the operational side where I'm not sure they did the best they could, but that's second order. They did the right thing. Um, Dr. Posen, you mentioned earlier the idea that they can always reverse. This brings up this this interesting word, asymmetric. Mm-hmm. To review, the Bank of Japan got bold, raised rates, I'm going to say 15 years ago, and got crushed. And they, right. with great humility, they had to lower rates again. Now, this is the opposite. Carney is lowering rates, and he has the luxury of raising them, you know, et cetera. Help, help me here with that asymmetry that he faces now. It's a really good point, Tom. There's a certain amount of gamesmanship, and I, I, I know you didn't mean this, but I don't want to think of it as sort of like people are playing it around. Tricking no, no, game people. theory. Yeah, I meant yeah, that exactly, yeah, exactly. I know you meant it that way. I just want yeah. to be clear. Yeah. Because, you know, anytime time Central Bank makes an announcement on monetary policy, and it doesn't matter if you're at the zero lower bound or not, although it's exacerbated when you're this close to zero. There's always the question of, well, they're doing something. A, are they doing that because the forecast is so much worse than we thought, and so therefore it's more a bad news message than a good news message? And B, they're doing something. Is this all they can do? What are they going to do next? And again, those two questions are inevitable for markets mm-hmm. and from expectations, but you've got to try to figure out how to manage them. And so your example of the Bank of Japan was it, it is, is actually, it, uh, in terms of form, is the same, but it's actually very different because they just fundamentally blew the forecast. Right. Let me they ask, raised – sorry, go ahead. No, I, I, just because of time, Adam, I think this question is so important. To Anna Schwartz to Milton Friedman, to Richard Timberlake of the Georgia School. Yep. The, the idea here of the courage and will to get out front exactly. is what we saw today the most ex-ante call you've ever seen in central banking versus what everybody does is go ex-post and wait for the fact to occur? It's up there. And you're, again, you're right to frame it in the way that Friedman and Schwartz did in terms of the U.S. Fed failing to get out ahead of the Great Depression. Um, it's up there. It, and it, it gives one hope, not just about the Bank of England, but the people really have learned something from the crisis. Adam Posen, thank you so much. An historic but, day. Really appreciate Dr. Posen's uh, continued uh, intelligence in um and humility, David Gurr, that he brings to this mystical alchemy and art. The Bank of England has made a decision. It has reverberated around the world, including Mark Carney's Canada, Almost to Canada's Michael McKee with a set of economists. And as Mike said to me this morning, they are absolutely riveted on the ramifications of Bank of England to the United Kingdom 
and also to the rest of the world. Here's Michael McKee uh, in conversation with Meghan McArdle. Your initial reaction to the Bank of England decision? Uh, the Bank of England absolutely had to cut rates, otherwise the markets would have been massively disappointed. Um, but expanding QE and buying corporate bonds in particular I, I don't think will help a whole lot. Um, much like the ECB, the Bank of England can't do much about the credit demand problem. Um, and so I think that's a much bigger issue than the credit supply problem, particularly for corporates. What about uh, the idea that three members dissented from the uh, corporate bond buying? I think that might be part of what's behind it. I mean, corporate borrowing costs are already pretty low in the U.K. Um, and what's more, actually, corporates um, are borrowing straight from banks through loans rather than issuing debt in the markets for the most part anyhow. So I don't think that expanding QE um, will help a whole lot. I think a funding for lending scheme might have been a lot more useful, and that, that might be what's behind those three dissensions. Well, do you think that this is basically Carney throwing the kitchen sink at things to sort of psychologically overwhelm the market? Uh, that could be it. He also announced um, term lending, which um, could help a bit in terms of passing on um, the rate cut from the banks to the end user to some degree. But, uh, you know, he could have done a lot more. I think a funding for lending scheme would have been more useful, but maybe he's holding something back for the next time around. Well, they did say that they expect another cut by the end of the year, and their forecasts are based on uh, just a 10 basis point base rate by the end of the year. Yeah, their GDP forecasts um, in include growth, though, and I think that that's probably pretty optimistic. So I think that the Bank of England will end up having to do more than they're currently expecting. Your call would be for a recession. Yeah, I think the U.K. will be in recession next year. Probably not this year, but I don't expect growth of 2% this year like the Bank of England. Now, they're also reasonably optimistic about keeping the inflation rate up. Uh, you think they get a boost from the pound falling? Uh, they might get a slight boost, but, you know, inflation has been incredibly difficult um, to find anywhere, um, particularly in the Western world, and I don't think that the U.K. is probably going to be immune from that. Now, what do you think overall of um, the British econ economic outlook after Brexit? Um, I think that post-Brexit, actually, it might look a little bit less bad than it currently does, just because there's so much uncertainty right now. So I don't know why anyone would invest in the U.K., given that it's completely unclear what their rights as a company would be investing there. Um, so you might get a little bit of a bounce back once we figure out what Brexit actually looks like. Um, but no matter what, I think it will be a headwind uh, on the economy. I think that whatever deal the U.K. ends up with, um, and it will probably be a free trade agreement in my view, um, it won't be quite as good as the deal that the U.K. had as an EU member. So at this point, would a fiscal uh, measure help the British economy? Yeah, in the UK, as everywhere else, the fiscal stimulus will help. And I think we'll probably get that um, in the autumn budget. Uh, so it'll be a couple more months. But um, I do think that will come through. Um, and that will be a boon to the economy, but an economy that's facing massive headwinds. How much of a, a boost can they get? Uh, you still see recession, even if they're adding fiscal stimulus. Yep, I think even with a fiscal stimulus, which I do expect um, the hit to investment um, and also to consumer demand just based on confidence uh, will overwhelm that. So I still think the UK will go into recession. Now you've been watching the Monetary Policy Committee for years. How do you grade Mark Carney on his handling of uh, pre-Brexit and post-Brexit? Uh, I think Mark Carney, I mean, he hasn't had to do a whole lot. Um, the Bank of England has kept rates exactly where they were up until today you know, for years. Um, I think Mark Carney's had a lot of difficulties with forward guidance. I think he's had a lot less success than 
say, Janet Yellen. Um, I was surprised that he didn't actually act right after Brexit, that he waited to see what the impact of the Brexit referendum on the economy was before he went in and acted. Um, and I think he'll have to do more. So I think this might help on the margins, but it's certainly no silver bullet. Well, is he basically the only one standing between Britain and the deluge, as it were? Absolutely. I think um, for a while he was also the only political leader we had in the UK um, as the Leave campaign's leadership all sort of crumbled. And so Mark Carney has been the only leadership that the UK has had. Now, of course, there's a new prime minister, so that's helped. Um, but he's certainly well-trusted. Um, and that, you know, credibility is the currency of central bankers, so that will certainly help. Uh, does he stay on? Uh, I think he will. Yeah, I think he'll stay on. Um, I, we all hope he stays on, at least. Megan Green. I said Megan McArdle. I mixed my Megans up. Excuse me. Megan McArdle of Bloomberg View. Uh, and, and I got that wrong. Megan Green with Manulife, with a terrific background. And David, what's great about her is she's got the London, uh, rather United Kingdom education. So she really has an interesting Manulife Canadian thing going, the John Hancock thing going in Boston, and also her foundation in England. So she's really someone to talk to there. Yeah, she's been back and forth uh, across, the, across the pond a number of times. I've talked to her through the years and just an incredibly great yeah. resource. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.